Hey, good to have everyone here today. Let's begin class with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come together and study. We ask that your spirit will join us in this holiday season. We want to especially just give thanks for what Jesus has done for us. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Today we're doing lesson number two in our quarterly, The Fruit of the Spirit. And the lesson title this week is, The Fruit of the Spirit is Love. And if somebody would read the first paragraph there in Sabbath's lesson, excuse me, the second paragraph that starts, John says. John says it so plainly and simply, God is love. Because love is so central to his character, love must be central to ours as well. He who abides in love abides in God, and God in you. Now, I may be playing semantics, I don't know, you guys can shoot me down if I am, but as I read that I thought... The way it said it's so central to his character. Is there something more to God's character than love? Not abilities. Not, 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 you know, the Bible says God is love, not God is power. He has power, but he not, he's not power. If you think about it, is there something more than love? Is any attribute of God an expression of something other than love? Yes. Uh, this may be very simplistic, but uh, when we're... Learning things about arithmetic in school, we say two plus two is four. And so when I hear somebody say God is, I'm thinking God equals. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking too. I, 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 maybe I'm simplistic too, but that's how I hear it. I've been having an online discussion with a young man who's struggling with this concept. And this is an email, he portion of an email that he sent me. I want you to see what you think of this. It says, to use the true statement, God is love, in an attempt to prove God's character of love and his being of love are one and the same is unbiblical and illogical. The texts that use the statement God is love are clearly describing God, not identifying him. It is understood who is being talked about. What is being explained in these, these verses is what God is about, if you will. God is the who, identity. Love is what is the what, the descriptor. You have provided no biblical or logical evidence to support the notion that God and his character are one and the same. There are no defining characteristics of God's identity. The only defining characteristics of God's identity are one such as Jehovah, Lord of Lords, etc. This is who God is. His character is what he is like. What do you all think about that line of reasoning? I deal with this with patients uh, frequently. Um, I have uh, men who come to see me who have had a major heart attack, and they're now what we call cardiac cripples. They can't work. Or they've had serious back injury, and they can no longer work, and they can't do the things they've always done. And do you know what they struggle with? Loss of identity. Because they have found their identity in what they do. And, 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 and this is a flaw, actually. It's a defect. It's not who they really are. And we have to walk through this, and they feel like a burden to the family. They feel like the family would be better off without them. And I will, will ask them these questions. Well, let's reverse this. Let's pretend for a moment your oldest son or your wife has had the, the back injury and can no longer do the things they do. And they're feeling like they're a burden. They're feeling like they're, they're, the family would be better off without them. Would you, would you say that your family would be better off if your wife was gone because she couldn't work? Well, no, it's like a shock. Oh, no way. How about your oldest son? Family better off, he's gone. No, I said, you mean, but, but they can't work. Why do you value these people if they can't work? And he says, for 
who they are, not for what they do. Now, what is the true identity of a person? Who they are or what they do? Really? Yeah, how was a joke, okay? Thank you. Now, it is true that our true character will be manifested in the way we live our lives. So we can look to a certain degree, uh, a person who genuinely loves others, and that's who they are in heart. We won't, we won't find them running a pornography ring. Okay? I mean, you can have a certain connection there, but a, a person who loves others in heart may be a, a, a hard-working carpenter or a mason or doctor or lawyer, but a person who is all about themselves may also be a hard-working carpenter, mason, doctor, lawyer, too. Just the work occupation itself doesn't tell us who the person really is, does it? And so one of the things we work on is, the Bible says man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. That's our true identity. Are we kind? Are we gracious? Are we loving? Are we forgiving? Are we other-centered? Are we compassionate? Are we all about ourselves exploiting and taking advantage to get ourselves ahead? I mean, what is our true nature? And only in Christ. So, so when I look at this and I hear his arguments, I think that he's missing something. I think God's nature and character are love. What do you all think? That's who he is. Yeah, everything else stems from that. Why are so many people afraid of him? Why are so, he says, why are so many people afraid of him? Let's keep that in mind as we go through, because I think our lesson is going to bring that question out. It's a great question. Why are so many people afraid of him? Um, George MacDonald, a 19th century theologian, said this in his book, Discovering the Character of God. What is the deepest in God? His power? No, for power could not make him what we mean when we say God. A being whose essence was only power would be such a negation of the divine that no righteous worship could be offered him. His service would be that only of fear. Does that make sense to you? If a being had no only power but had no character of love, well, just imagine Adolf Hitler having the power of God. Do you think anybody who wasn't dead would be worshiping him? Yes. Because if you don't worship him, what happens? You're dead. So all those who aren't dead are worshiping him, but what would be their motive? Fear. Fear. Absolute fear. That's exactly right. Why is this important that we, we have this discussion about God's character of love versus some other attribute that people want to constantly try to weave in there? Well, it says in 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, and you guys should, should say this with me because we all know it by heart by now. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Now, notice what we demolish. We demolish every argument and pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Get your mind around what this is saying. And we bring every thought into captivity to Jesus Christ. We are fighting a war against arguments and pretensions that set themselves up against the knowledge of God. God has been lied about. He's been misrepresented. We believe falses, all these twisted things. And we have divine weapons that demolish that. And that, is, and that is what we're involved in. And Paul tells us in Romans 1 that if we reject the truth about God, if we exchange the truth about God for a lie, we prefer images made to our own hands, that our minds become futile, darkened, and depraved. We actually can't have a healed mind as long as we hold to these twisted ideas about God. And with all that in mind, I want to read you this little exchange between 
Christ and his disciples and see if we can't gain further insight into what was actually being described here. And there are a few seats up here, if you guys would like them. Come on right up, it's not a problem. This is out of Matthew 16, 13 through 20. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter replied, uh, Simon Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. What do you think is being said here? In light of our conversation, our conversation that our divine weapons destroy everything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. What is the, what is the rock upon which Jesus is building his church? Look at the context. The, what? The truth about? The truth about him. And, and, and what was that truth? What was the thing that Christ, he got this answer. Who do people say I am? You're one of the prophets. You're Moses. You're Elijah. Peter, you are the son of the living God. You are God incarnate. You are God in human flesh. Upon this rock, this truth, this reality, will my church be built. This is the truth when people see that, that when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. This is what God looks like. This is the foundation upon which the church will be built. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, in warfare setting, what kind of a weapon is a gate? Do you see people running into battle carrying gates? No. Defensive weapons. You see, Satan took humanity in this planet by deception, by deceit. And he holds it now. He's holding in a defensive posture against the revelation of truth, which destroys lies. And Christ is the way, the truth, and the light. He's the light which lightens all men. He is the source of the answers that destroy the lies that set us free. Satan is trying to hold us in darkness. But the gates of hell cannot prevail against the truth. The truth will penetrate into the minds and set people free. So we see this this description here, that the gates of hell will not overcome it, and, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom. What do you think the keys of the kingdom are? What are the keys that unlock the gates and set us free? The truth. John 8, 32. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The truth about what? The truth about God. And so what, for, for those who come back to the knowledge of God as revealed in Jesus Christ, we are bound to him in our hearts in love and adoration and, a, and affection. Those who, and thus what is bound here on earth is bound in heaven. Those who reject the truth about God, prefer to hold to Satan's lies here on earth, are let go and given up to reap their consequence. Does that make sense? Yeah. Now, I was, uh, some of you may have read my blog for this week. Um, just thought I had this week. Imagine for a moment um, that you were one of the wise men after Christ's birth, and you come to the manger where he is, 
to worship him and you've been led this whole way because of the reading of the prophetic writings and the, and the guiding star and all these things and you understand who you're about to meet and you go to give your gifts, Mary puts baby Jesus in your arms. Get your mind around that moment. You're holding God in your arms. Why did Jesus come as a baby? One of the reasons he came as a baby, not the exclusive reason, but one of the reasons, how many of you are afraid of a baby? (laughs) Were you afraid of the baby or afraid of your failure of the baby? (laughs) You afraid the baby is going to come in and hurt you and stab you and stomp on you and kill you and beat you? No. See, new parents are not afraid of the baby. New parents are afraid of their failure for the needs of the baby. That's what they're afraid of, but not the baby. They're not afraid the baby's going to harm them. And so Christ came as a baby. This is God. And as you're holding God in your hands, in your arms, and you're rocking him, and you put your finger out, and he grasps your finger, and he looks in your eyes, what do you experience? Are you afraid? No. This melts your heart in appreciation and love. This is one of the messages God wants us to get, that he, the creator of all, put his life in our hands. Can you trust a God like that? Yeah, it's powerful. It gives me chills as I think about it. So is the truth about God's character important? Well, I want to examine a, uh, uh, we'll do a little, sometimes we do this in class, I'll read a passage and then we'll go back and dissect it, you know, dissection. We'll do a dissection of a, of a passage from the book Great Controversy. I'm going to read it to you and let's go back and then dissect it, analyze it. This is out of Great Controversy, page uh, 467. It's about God's law, about God's character, still talking about this, this stuff. It says, the law of God from its very nature is unchangeable. It is a revelation of the will and the character of its author. God is love, and his law is love. Its two great principles are love to God and love to man. Love is the fulfilling of the law, Romans 13.10. The character of God is righteousness and truth, and such is the nature of his law. Says the psalmist, thy law is truth, and all the commandments are righteousness. And the apostle Paul declares the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, just, and good. Such a law, being an expression of the mind and will of God, must be as enduring as its author. It is the work of conversion and sanctification to reconcile men to God by bringing them into accord with the principles of his law. In the beginning, man was created in the image of God. He was in perfect harmony with the nature and the law of God. The principles of righteousness were written upon his heart. But sin alienated him from his maker. He no longer reflected the divine image. His heart was at war with the principles of God. The carnal mind is enmity against God and not subject to the law of God. Neither can it be indeed, Romans 8, 7. But God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him should, uh, might be reconciled. Through the merits of Christ, he can be restored to harmony with his maker. His heart must be renewed by divine grace. He must have a new life from above. This change is the new birth without which, Jesus says, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The law reveals to man sin, but it provides no remedy. While it promises life to the obedient, it declares death is the portion of the transgressor. The gospel of Christ alone can free him from the condemnation and defilement of sin. He must exercise repentance towards God whose law has been transgressed and faith in Christ as his atoning sacrifice. Thus, he obtains remissions that are sins past and becomes partaker of the divine nature. He is a child of God having received 
the spirit of adoption whereby he cries, Abba, Father. So let's analyze this. Let's break it down. Sentence by sentence. The law of God from its very nature is unchangeable. Why? Why, why is it unchangeable? Because it's not arbitrary. Because it's not arbitrary. What does arbitrary mean? There's no reason. A law without meaning or reason. Say, number one, it's not arbitrary. Where's the source of God's law? Where does it originate? Is it something external to him? Or is it something that expresses who he is? Okay, so the law is unchangeable because God is unchangeable. It's an expression of his divine purpose. Does that mean he's inflexible? Does that mean he's inflexible? Um, does that mean, as we think about the law, and that's a good point. God is the creator of all things. And as he creates, does he create in harmony with his own nature? Or does he create things that are at variance or out of harmony with his nature? When, when he creates, as it comes from him. In harmony or out of harmony? In harmony. It says all things uh, come from him, and by him all things are sustained. So if he's creating life and the universe to run in harmony with his nature, it's in harmony with his character and harmony with his law. Now, if that's its design for, for living, if that's its design for staying healthy, what happens if you decide to step outside of that protocol? Example. Um, whatever car you drive, most likely, unless it's a diesel, you drive something that says unleaded fuel only. It's the design. The manufacturer made it to run smoothly on unleaded fuel. If you decide to step outside those protocols and put diesel in your engine, what's going to happen? Will the manufacturer hunt you down and punish you for doing this? No. 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 There will be no external imposed penalty, but what will happen? Is the, would you say, well, this manufacturer is rather inflexible? <laughs> It's not inflexible at all. It's the design protocol. God has designed us to run in certain ways, and when we break that protocol, consequences happen. Example, this law of giving or the law of love, we've talked about in here many times. Other-centered giving is the protocol for life. Every breath you breathe, you give away carbon dioxide, and the plants give back oxygen. If you decide, look, I'm going to tie a plastic bag over my head so I can retain my carbon dioxide. You decide to break that law. Is God being inflexible? No. No, God's law is not inflexible. It is the design construction protocols for all life in the universe. Breaches of it, as the scriptures say, result in death. Not as an imposed penalty, but as a natural consequence. Let's keep going through the statement. So its, it's nature is unchangeable because this is the design for life. If you change it, you break life. It is a revelation of the will and the character of its author. God is love and his law is love. So the law originated, so the question, where did the law originate? It originated from God as an expression of his character. And I ask the question, is it something external to God and compulsory upon him, his law? Or is it a manifestation of his nature? Is the law of God external to him and compulsory upon him? Or is it an expression of who he is? Is it something that he legislated and enacted like our Congress? Or is it, again, just the expression of his personhood and his being? It's two great principles are love to God and love to man. Love is fulfilling of the law. Question, can love be imposed? You know, if it could, wouldn't it be simple? Wouldn't our society, I mean, think this through. Wouldn't our society have most of the problems of our society resolved if everyone in society truly loved each other? Isn't that true? So why don't we just get Congress to pass a law? You shall love your neighbor as yourself truly from the heart. And once we pass that law, we've got the law now, we should be saved, right? We should have a wonderful society. Can you legislate love? No. 
Neither can God. God cannot pass a law that legislates this type of thing. This is a construction protocol. It has to be voluntarily and freely given from every sentient being. The character of God is righteousness and truth, such is the nature of his law. So what does love look like? Does love always do what's right? Or does love do what's wrong? What does love actually do? Always right. That is rightness or righteousness. Always doing the right thing. And is love honest or deceitful? Love always is truthful. So righteousness and truth, doing what's right and being truthful is an expression of love. Says the psalmist, the law is truth, all the commandments are righteousness. And the apostle Paul, the law is holy and the commandment is holy, just and good. Such a law being the expression of the mind and will of God. See here again, it's the expression of the mind of God. It's his mind being understood by us must be as enduring as its author. Why is such a law as enduring as its author? Because it originates with him and he sustains all things. If it is a it is the work of conversion and sanctification to reconcile man to God by bringing them into accord with the principles of his law. What does that say? What does that mean? Break that down. The plan of salvation, the plan of the work of conversion and sanctification to reconcile men to God. So first question. Who needs reconciling to whom? Does God need something done to get his attitude changed toward us? Do you understand most of Christianity's? that's what they teach? Christ died to assuage the anger and the wrath of a holy and offended God. His death was designed to pay our legal payment so that God would be enabled to reach out with his saving grace. That Christ died in order to reconcile God to man. What do you think? That's not how it's stated in her writings. Her writings are, Christ died that man might be reconciled to God. When Adam died, who got changed? God or Adam? So who needed to be fixed? God or Adam? Adam, yes. So first off, we see whatever Christ's work was, it was not to work on his father or change his father. It was an expression of the father's will and attitude for mankind. And so what was the change that you and I need? What changes that we need? What needs to be put back into our heart? What's the new covenant in Hebrews chapter 8? I will write my law on your hearts and minds. What law? The law of love. What law is in our hearts right now? Naturally. What are we born into the world with? Law of? Selfishness, also known in science literature as survival of the fittest. Watching out for yourself. Uh, law of love, greater love is no man that he give his life for a friend, which means I love you so much, I'll do whatever I have to for your health and welfare, including, if necessary, give my life that you might live. At war with survival of the fittest, which says I love myself so much, I'll do whatever I have to to protect myself, including, if it comes down to it, kill you that I might live. Give my life that you might live, kill you that I might live. We are born because of Adam's sin, infected with this principle. Our hearts naturally seek to promote self, even if we hurt others in the process. Christ wants to change that and rewrite his design protocols for life, which are other-centered giving, which is the foundation for, for all life. In the beginning, man was created in the image of God. He was perfect in harmony with the nature and the law of God. The principles of righteousness were written upon his heart. There it is, this other-centered free, living and free, free loving and giving. So in God's original design, were there a bunch of rules imposed on Adam and Eve, 
to which they had to adhere uh, lest there be some imposed penalty upon them? Or was the law a natural law emanating from their own heart as they related to God and love? Which was it? Set of rules? Well, let's, let's keep going. Which was? He says there's one rule, not to eat of the tree. Not to eat of the tree. Well, let's keep that one in mind as we see if that was really the issue at hand or something else that was more subtle than that. It says, but sin alienated man from his maker. He no longer reflected the divine image. His heart was at war with the principles of, his, of God's law. Uh, how did this happen? How did sin alienate man from God? What happened? I mean, they're created perfectly. They have other-centered love. They have no internal desires for self-centeredness. What could cause them to be changed from loving other-centered beings to these beings focused on getting their own way? Choice. Choice to do what? Say that. Uh, three, four, five people said to believe a lie. Choice to believe a lie. You see, what we believe has power over us. See, we have power over what we believe, but our beliefs have power over us. They can either heal or they can destroy. But if you believe the lie, will something inside of you change? What changes? Trust. Trust is broken. And what, what emotion stems up in your heart? Fear. Fear. See, as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid because they were afraid. Perfect love casts out all fear. Fear is the emotion. When you get more afraid, where does your focus turn? Helping others or protecting self? Protecting self. This fear-based approach to life is the, uh, is the consequence to believing that God can't be trusted. God can't be trusted. He's this awful being. He's a power monger. He's detached. He doesn't care. He's, he's self-centered. Oh, I can't trust him. Believe those lies. I'm afraid of him now. I've got to watch out for myself. Take the fruit. Try to get ahead. And then first thing that happens when God comes in the cool of the day, Adam, where are you? You hid. What's the deal on that? What was the woman you gave me? It's her fault. Take her. Protect me. Let's sacrifice others to protect ourselves. Nature changed. Nature changed. So we need, a, we need to be changed back. And so here's a quote out of a review in Herald, January 5, 1886. It says, Eve believed the words of Satan, and the belief of that falsehood in regard to God's character changed the condition and character of both her husband, herself and her husband. They were changed from good and obedient children to transgressors by change of a belief. Now, last week and the couple of weeks before, we've talked in this class about the neurobiology of belief. And how when you change your beliefs, you actually change neural wiring. You change chemical neuropeptides that are uh, released in your brain. This can cause a cascade of, of inflammatory factors that ultimately will change which genes are turned on and turned off in your body. I mean, you are, we are designed by God for adaptation. We change based on life experience. And so Satan's power is the power to get us to believe falsehood, which inflames fear, which drives us to be more self-centered which causes physiological destructive consequences. I don't have time to go into all those details today. And also changes the neural wiring of our brain. It says, next, next section. But God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that man might be reconciled to God. So why was Christ given? So that God, through the sacrifice of Christ, might now be willing to be forgiving to us? That Christ did something to get God to no longer be mad, and now God will grant forgiveness? Is that why Christ came? This is what's taught in most of Christianity. So that his anger would be removed? No. He came to reveal the truth. If you now believe your wife is cheating, 
you're, you're hurt, you're fearful, you don't want to go home, you don't want to be in the bedroom with her tonight, you've moved out, you've got your own place because you believe she's been with another man. Now, she's innocent. She's done nothing wrong. In order for reconciliation to happen, what will your wife need to do? If you believe she's a cheat and she wants to reconcile with you, what will she need to do? Change what you think. And so will she have to demonstrate or bring evidence to bear of the truth of her loyalty and fidelity and faithfulness and love for you to persuade you with truth that you have been lied to and dispel the lie? Will that be necessary before reconciliation can happen? Now, even though your wife has done no wrong, in your mind, who's the one that's being tried? She's on trial. This is the great controversy between Christ and Satan. God has done nothing wrong. But in our minds, we don't believe him. And because he loved us so much, he has been out to prove that he is faithful and he is loyal. So you read in Romans 3, 4, God, may you win your case when you take it into court. And you understand the, the Advent message of the end time, Revelation chapter 14. Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. The hour when we have enough truth to be able to say, whoa, we have been lied to. We have judged him as untrustworthy. We can judge him as someone we can trust. And how do we give him glory? How is a doctor, how does a doctor, a loving doctor, glorified? By healing patients. Exactly right. You have patients that are dying and terminal, and a loving doctor has a remedy. It is in the lives of the restored people to health that the doctor gets glory. Is that not right? How is God glorified? Fear God and give glory to him. By restoring love in your heart and mind. That we come to live lives of love, God is glorified in this time of his judgment. And then we become these witnesses in the world. Keep reading down. Oh, and one other, one other quote that goes along with that about this power of belief. This is out of First Selected Messages 346. Through belief in Satan's misrepresentations of God, man's character and destiny were changed. But if men will believe in the word of God, capital W, the word of God, they will be transformed in mind and character and fitted for eternal life. To believe that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life will change the heart and reproduce in man the image of God. What we believe has power over us. You've, some of you have been in here when I've gone through the, the patient case reports of people who believe things that were not true about their medical condition and how as long as they believed these things, they got worse and worse and worse. And the, and the cascade of, of, of changes physiologically was happening just based on belief. And as they got the truth that this wasn't true for them, their whole physiological health changed. What we believe has power over us. We need to believe the truth as revealed in Jesus. So through the merits of Christ, he, the sinner can be restored to harmony with his maker. His heart must be renewed by divine grace. He must have a new life from above. This change is the new birth without which Jesus says he cannot see the kingdom of God. So what is the emphasis here in scripture for us in this condition? Is the emphasis on legal payment, appeasing an angry wrathful God, or is the emphasis here that we need Healing, remedy, transformation, the fear and selfishness removed, other-centered love and trust restored within. We need to be reborn, changed, recreated, renewed, restilled, restored. What's all the metaphors of Scripture? Born again, circumcision of the heart, the stony heart removed, the heart of flesh put in, write the law in the heart and mind. What do all the metaphors teach? That God needs to be appeased or that we need to be changed? 
that we need to be changed. It's, it's, our, it's our problem, and God has brought us the, re- the remedy or the solution. The law reveals to man his sin, but it provides no remedy. It's like an MRI. You've got cancer, you go in the MRI scanner, the scanner shows this big tumor. Do you then spend your time trying to appease the scanner so it won't see any more defects in you? <laughs> Do you instead go to the doctor and try to get the doctor or the nurses to change the medical records so the medical records won't have any record of what's wrong with you? You understand in Christianity, we play all these games. We play these games uh, in the judgment. When the father looks at us in the judgment, he doesn't see us. He sees his son who stands in our place. When you go into the doctor's examining room after having been diagnosed with terminal cancer by the MRI scanner, as the doctor comes in to examine you, you quickly shove your healthy brother in, in front of you and ask him to look at him instead of you. How's that working? No. But what did David pray in Scripture? Father, search me and see the wicked way in me. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. We'd be saying, Lord, is there some defect in me? I want you to find it. Examine me all the way to the core. And then you're the creator. You know what's wrong. You know what's broken. Fix it. I trust you. Fix it. That's what we should be praying. Or the, the investigative judgment, a truly Adventist doctrine, which goes something like this. Right now in heaven since 1844, Jesus has been leading out with a big old trial of a bunch of, of angels and any of the redeemed like Enoch or Moses or Elijah or any of the ones that were resurrected at Christ's uh, resurrection, those, those that were seen and taken to heaven. All those first fruits are in heaven, sitting around tables, going through books, looking at records and deciding who's going to be saved and who's going to be lost. And those who have claimed the blood of Jesus as their savior have his blood applied to their record book and it races their records of sin and they can have pardon stamped by their name. You have, a, you have a son who's dying of cancer. It's metastasized all over the body. The doctors say there's no hope, it's terminal. But you heard, there's a doctor out west, that everyone that goes to this doctor comes away with a clean bill of health. You're excited. You get your child, you do get an appointment. You get the medical records, you go out, you get your day with the doctor, you show the medical records, you got the MRIs, the biopsies, the scans, everything showing the extent of disease, and you hand in the record, and the doctor opens the records up. He looks at the records, and then he begins ripping out the sheets of disease and sticking in blank white, white piece of paper, hands the record back to you and says, look, no more record of disease. The records have been cleansed. Are you happy with that? How about if the doctor looks at the record, then he gets up and goes over to your child, examines your child, and then intervenes in the life of the child with a remedy that puts the cancer into remission. Without the shedding of blood, there is no Remission. The cancerous cells remit back to their previous healthy state. And now the records reveal the disease, the records reveal the intervention of the doctor, and the records now reveal that your child is cancer-free. How do the records in heaven get cleansed? By cleansing his people on earth. And if we have some model that says there's record book cleansing going on, but there's no heart-changing cleansing going on, well, that's not very good for the people, is it? False gospel, he said. Yes, you had your hand up. Um, is it correct to look at it in a two-part instead of a one-part? Because we know that when we're sinners, the Bible says in Isaiah 59, 2, that sin separates us from God. So at first, if I'm a sinner out in the world, I need to come to God first and take that initial step, which is make the appointment to the doctor. And then after that, he can heal me. But there's that initial step, which some people call justification. So I see it as a two-part step. We first have to come to God. And at that moment, even though I still have all those defects, if I die like the man on the cross, Christ's love will be cover me for that second, and I'm saved. But now I have to live a life that glorifies him. So I see it as a two-part step. Who, who comes first? Do we come to God, or does God come to us? 
while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The first step is his coming to us. And the revelation of truth brings us a conviction that there's something wrong. So the law was given, as it says in Romans, to diagnose sin, where the law is the sin, uh, sin abounds, for the purpose of the same reason the MRI is there. I've had patients who, hey, there's nothing wrong with me, I'm fine. You can't help somebody who denies they have a problem. But once they're convinced of the problem, then they can be helped. So yes, there is a conviction that there's something wrong and needs healing. That has to happen or else, because the Holy Spirit will not force a healing upon anyone. Okay, so there's absolutely true. But you mentioned the blood of Christ then covers you. What does that mean? Well, think of the person, uh, the, the man who was crucified next to Jesus. He did not get the time to get sanctified. He didn't have time to change all his defects, but yet he will be saved. So how does that happen for him? It's because he claimed the promise of salvation. The blood of Christ was sufficient for him, and he will be The blood of Christ is sufficient. What does that mean? It's a metaphor. It's not literal. Christ said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. He wasn't talking about cannibalism. So when you use this word blood of Christ, what do you mean? It's a metaphor. Well, his sins were covered. Meaning all- his sins were covered. So when the father, so when the father looks at his record book, he, it's like uh, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the great judgment, Satan is the accuser. We read in Zechariah 3, he comes along and begins accusing of all the sins. David murdered Uriah, stole Bathsheba, blah, 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 blah. And Jesus pulls out and we say, David, son of Jesse, David, son of Jesse. Oh, here it is. David, son of Jesse. Here we go. Okay. Uh, wait, I don't know what you're talking about, Mr. Devil, because the blood of Jesus has been applied and it's like magic eraser ink. We have no knowledge of this. Is that what's happening? This is what's traditionally taught, and we don't have time to go into it today, but it's often taught, we confess our sins, they're erased out of the books of heaven, and in fact, memory is erased, and there'll be no memory of the sins that went ahead, ahead of, beforehand into judgment. So right now, because David's sins have already been cleansed from the books of heaven, his judgment has already occurred in the investigative judgment, they've been wiped out. So as we talk about David and read our Bibles right now, does that mean the angels in heaven are going, what are they talking about? I don't know who that guy is. No, we have these w- weird ideas based on this idea that, that it's some legal process rather than a, an actual condition of heart and mind that needs to be restored. And the bottom line issue, the bottom line issue is what is it that we have to achieve in order to be, will- to be able to, to be in God's presence? Do we have to have all of the details of Scripture work out correctly? Do we have to be able to document the, uh, the, uh, the 2300-day prophecy in all its detail? No. What we have to have, it says in uh, Micah 6, 6 through 8, He has shown you, O man, what is good. To love mercy, to act justly, and to walk humbly with your God. In other words, you have got to come to love and trust God and love others more than self. That's what you have to come to. And you have a love for the truth, that you're willing to follow the truth wherever it leaves. You may not know it all. You've got all the confused ideas in your mind. But your heart is, I want the truth. And I know there's some things not right in mind. And I want those worked out. That heart attitude is a person who is in a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And there'll be a lot of growth. How many thinks when Christ comes and arrives in the clouds of glory, there will be one human being on earth that understands the scriptures correctly in every way? We all have a lot of learning to do. But how many of the saved will all have that love for God, love for their fellow man, it says, in fact, in, Re- in Revelation chapter 12, describing those who are ready to meet Jesus when he comes, these are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. What is the description here? These are they who've got the 27 fundamental beliefs correctly identified. 28. Oh, thank you. See? Oh, I'm lost. I only had 27. Oh, man. Okay? Yeah. No. Um, it's they don't love their life so much as to shrink from death. The survival of the fittest instinct, watching out for number one, protecting self, 
has been replaced with love, we're not worried about protecting self. We're willing to give ourselves, if it's necessary, to save others. That's the difference. I got to go on. I got to go on. Okay, because we have so much more. In fact, I, I need to probably just skip to the end. Um, the law of real sin knows no remedy. The gospel of Christ can free him from the condemnation. What does the good news about Christ accomplish? It destroys the, Satan's lies and wins us to trust. And in trust, when we open the heart, the Holy Spirit brings to us all that Christ achieved and changes our hearts. Our thoughts come into harmony with his. Our desires become into harmony with his. We then actually come to love God and love others more than self. Fear is suppressed. Neurobiologically, what happens when we meditate on a God of love? We actually spend 12 minutes a day meditating on a God of love. The interesting cortex of the brain, right behind your forehead, is where we experience love, altruism, compassion, other-centeredness, and directly calms the fear center known as the amygdala. 12 minutes a day of meditation on a God of love causes growth within 30 days of the anterior cingulate cortex, lowered blood pressure, lower heart rate, lower stress hormone levels, all within 30 days of meditating on a God of love. Any other God construct, God, angry God, wrathful God, distant God, uh, critical God, does not result in this. It actually flames up the fear centers. So, you know, this, 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 this idea, this truth that we are changed by meditating on God of love, once we're one to trust, love comes in, it actually changes us. We have a changed experience as well. Neurobiologically, physiologically. Okay. Tim, that's what happened to the thief on the cross. That's exactly what happened to the thief on the cross. He was relating in love even to his enemy. He was won over to love, wasn't he? That's exactly right. Desire of Ages 762. The law requires righteousness, a righteous life, a perfect character. This man has not to give. He cannot meet the claims of God's holy law. But Christ, coming to earth as a man, lived a holy life, developed a perfect character. These he offers as a free gift to all who receive them. His life stands for the life of men. Thus they have remissions of sin that are passed through the forbearance of God. More than this, Christ imbues men with the attributes of God. He builds up the human character after the similitude of the divine character, a goodly fabric of spiritual strength and beauty. Thus the very righteousness of the law is fulfilled in the believer. We become partakers of the divine nature. So this is an actual regenerating, transforming process that we actually come to love God and others and live free from fear. And I ask, what does this look like? I got an email this week from one of my patients um, in the Christmas season. She's 20 years of age. She was abandoned by her mother at birth, had no father, didn't know where the father was, lived the first five years of her life in an orphanage, and was, was uh, in an orphanage without much attendance or care, lots of mistreatment and abuse. And um, I have been treating her for about 18 months for a lot of... Um, um, Impulse control issues, anger issues, um, relationship issues, self-destructive type stuff. This is her email to me. As you are aware, I'm a very selfish person, and being selfless is not natural for me. As I am in the holiday season, I'm trying not to forget that Christmas is not about getting, but about giving. So I brighten my holiday season by brightening someone else's. I had opportunities to give this year, and I strive to participate in all of them. Our school is taking donations for a single mother with a son who has severe autism and no income. The donation failed because people wouldn't give. These people have clothes, food, a warm bed, a house, and money, and all these, and all they could donate to this family were pennies. Pennies. This poor woman had a child and doesn't know if she'll have a roof over her head. What is she going to do with a bunch of pennies? All she got was a bunch of pennies and a few dimes and two small boxes of food. I gave her a full box of food. And I feel bad for that family. In fact, my heart breaks for that mother because she is going to have to suffer the consequences of people's selfishness. See, she's talking to me now. See, look, empathy. One of the things we were working on with her. (laughs) Two years ago, I wouldn't even have thought twice about people in need. I didn't care about people in need or homeless children who have no family. 
that's their problem, not mine. All I cared about what was what I got for Christmas, and I'd throw a fit if I didn't get what I wanted. I'm also participating in a Secret Santa program. I drew the name of a fellow student and crocheted a scarf for her. I also participated in the Red Cross Holiday Food Drive. I gave my day's tips for, from haircutting to a homeless man on the side of the road. And after doing all this, I'm feeling things I've never felt. Contentment and pure joy. Being proud of myself. I'm no longer feeling I need Christmas gifts right now. They seem insignificant. And I'm learning that by being selfish, you are never content. You will always want more. You can only feed it with one thing at a time. But by being selfish, you have done two things. Help others, and you've helped yourself. And that quells all selfishness. And I know that's the lesson God has wanted me to learn for a very long time. Thank you. And by meditating on, the, on God's love and giving of myself, I am moving towards health. Isn't that beautiful? Yes. In Monday's lesson, it talks about family love and family unity and about how um, love can never be commanded or forced. Or, and there's no arguments against love. People can argue against your doctrines, but they can't argue against love. And, how, and I wanted to read to you a story along these lines about love and what it looks like. And family love is a representation of God's love out of a book um, called What's So Amazing About Grace by Philip Yancey. Have you all heard, heard of this book? Yes. Have you read it, some of you? Yeah, it has a powerful story in here I want to share with you. It's on page 49. A girl grows up on a cherry orchard above Traverse City, Michigan. Her parents, a bit old-fashioned, tend to overreact to her nose ring the music she listens to, and the length of her skirt. They, grow, they ground her a few times, and she sees inside. I hate you, she screams at her father when he knocks on her door of her room after an argument. And that night, she acts on a plan she had mentally rehearsed scores of time. She runs away. She had visited Detroit only once before on a bus trip with her church youth group to watch a Tigers play. Because newspapers in Traverse City report in lurid detail the gangs, the drugs, and the violence in downtown Detroit, she concludes that is probably the last place her parents will ever look for her. California, maybe. Florida, possibly. But not Detroit. Her second day there, she meets a man who drives the biggest car she's ever seen. He offers her a ride, buys her lunch, plays, uh, buys her lunch, and arranges a place for her to stay. He gives her some pills that make her feel better than she's ever felt before. She was right all along. She decides her parents were keeping her from all the fun. The good life continues for a month, two months, a year. The man with the big car, she calls him boss, teaches her a few things that men like. Since she's underage, men pay a premium for her. She lives in a penthouse and orders room service whenever she wants. Occasionally she thinks about the folks back home, but their life seems so boring and provincial that she can hardly believe she grew up there. She has a a brief scare when she sees her picture printed on the back of a milk carton with the headlines, Have you seen this child? But by now she has blonde hair, and with all the makeup and body-piercing jewelry she wears, nobody would mistake her for a child. Besides, most of her friends are runaways, and no one squeals in Detroit. After a year, the the first sallow signs of illness appear, and it amazes her how fast the boss turns mean. These days we can't mess around, he growls, and before she knows it, she's out on the street without a penny to her name. She still turns a couple of tricks a night, but they don't pay much, and all the money goes to support her habit. When winter blows in, she finds herself sleeping on metal grates outside the big department store. Sleeping is the wrong word. A teenage girl at night in downtown Detroit can never relax her guard. Dark band circles 
appear below her eyes. Her cough worsens. One night as she lies awake, listening for footsteps, all of a sudden, everything about her life looks different. She no longer feels like a woman of the world. She feels like a little girl, lost in a cold and frightening city. She begins to whimper. Her pockets are empty and she feels hungry. She needs a fix. She pulls her legs tight underneath her and shivers under the newspaper she's piled on top of her coat. Something jolts a synapse of memory and a single image fills her mind. Of May in Traverse City, when the million cherry blossom trees are blooming all at once and her golden retriever dashes through the rows and rows of blossoming trees in chase of a tennis ball. God, why did I leave? She says to herself, and pain stab her heart. My dog back home eats better than I do. She's sobbing, and she knows in a flash that more than anything in the world, she wants to go home. Three straight phone calls, three straight connections with the answering machine. She hangs up without leaving a message the first two times, but on the third, she says, Dad, Mom, it's me. I was wondering about maybe coming home. I'm catching a bus up your way, and it'll get there about midnight tomorrow. If you're not there, well, I guess I'll just stay on the bus until it hits Canada. It takes about seven hours for the bus to make all the stops between Detroit and Traverse City. And during that time, she realizes the flaws in her plans. What if her parents are out of town and misses the message? Shouldn't she have waited another day or so until she could talk to them? And even if they're home, they probably wrote her off as dead long ago. She should have given some time for them to overcome the shock. Her thoughts bounce back and forth between these worries and the speech she is preparing for her father. Dad, I'm sorry. I know I was wrong. It's not your fault. It's all mine. Dad, can you forgive me? She says the words over and over, her throat tightening, even as she rehearses them. She hasn't apologized in years. The bus has been driving with lights on since Bay City. The tiny snowflakes hit the pavement, rubbed by, rubbed worn by thousands of tires, and the asphalt steams. She's forgotten how dark it gets at night out here. A deer darts across the road, and the bus swerves. Every so often, a billboard, a sign posting the mileage to Traverse City. Oh, God. When the bus finally rolls into the stations, its air brakes hissing in protest, the driver announces in a crackling voice over the microphone, 15 minutes, folks, that's all we have here. 15 minutes to decide her life. She checks herself in the compact mirror, smooths her hair, and licks her lipstick off her teeth. She looks at the tobacco stains on her fingertips and wonders if her parents will notice, or if they're even there. She walks into the terminal not knowing what to expect. Not one of the thousand scenes that she have played out in her mind prepares her for what she sees. There, in the concrete-walled and plastic-chaired bus terminal in Traverse City, Michigan, stands a group of 40 brothers and sisters, aunts and uncles, and cousins and grandmothers and grandfather and grandmother and great-grandmother to boot. They're all wearing goofy party hats and blowing noisemakers and taped taped across the entire wall of the terminal as a computer-generated banner reading, Welcome Home. Out of the crowd of well-wishers breaks her dad. She starts out through the tears, quivering in her eye, not like hot mercury, begins to the memorized speech. Dad, I'm sorry, I I know. He interrupts her, hush, child. We've got no time for that. No time for apologies. You'll be late for the party. A banquet is waiting for you. What do you all think? Do you not see that that's our father? And all of our brothers and sisters throughout the universe are standing there with signs held high, welcoming us home, waiting for us to come back. The whole universe is going to be a huge party. And and it's for us. That's what love looks like. 
What an incredible God we serve. Thoughts, comments? The lesson argues that no one can argue against love and a life of love. But someone is arguing against love and a life of love. And do you know what the argument looks like? I'll share with you out of Desire of Ages, page 761, how this argument opened against love. These are the words. In the opening of the great controversy, here we are at the beginning, the the foundational arguments. Satan had declared that the law of God could not be obeyed, that justice was inconsistent with mercy, and that should the law be broken, it would be impossible for the sinner to be pardoned. Every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. And if God should remit the punishment of sin, he would not be the God of truth and justice. What is this argument? It's about God. That God can't forgive you. He's got to punish sin. Now he sent his son, and he punished him in your place, and you accept that payment, then you won't have to be punished, but boy, is he going to punish the others. It's a lie. It's always been a lie. God is love. If we step outside and the Bible teaches the wages of sin is death, not the punishment of God, where sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. Not at the hand of God. You see, Satan has got us so twisted in our thinking that we are more afraid of God, who is trying to heal us, than sin in our life, which is killing us. So backwards. A couple minutes left, and um, I got this email talking about Wednesday's lesson. Don't have to really read, time to read the paragraph, but this email from somebody discussing, um, because it's about loving enemies in Wednesday's lesson. It's about loving enemies. And it says, uh, this person emailed me and said, I wanted to discuss Jesus' request that we love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. My question is, even though Satan has at present made a decision that is against God, should we not, in accordance with Jesus' teaching to love our enemies and pray for those that persecute us, still pray for him anyway? Here's what's, here's what's driving my question. Tim, my heart just breaks for our father. I used to think about things like what our mansions will look like in heaven. Will my dog be there? Then I moved to wanting to relish in being taught by God uh, how the universe was created. Then I moved to thinking about how he will be there to comfort me as I see unsaved loved ones of mine in their final moments. Then I moved to consider his heart as he watches beings he loves experience their final moments of existence. I want to be there to comfort him. I look at my children and what I would go through to have to bury one of them, and I can't even imagine what it will be like for him. I don't want him to have to experience that. While I understand the concept of freedom and that Satan has the freedom to make choices, don't I still have the ability to make choices on how I respond to his attacks on me? Something that puzzles me, and maybe I'm outside of the scripture here, I don't know, as it seems that we Christians read the Bible and see that Satan, demons, and the unsaved were destroyed, we kind of relish in it. Some feel sad for the humans in this process, but the people who believe in the fiery hell where people are actively punished can't wait to see Satan get his. And those of us who believe it's God's turning and our souls just being snuffed out, we sort of do the same thing. And she goes on to ask, shouldn't we be praying? Thoughts about that? I mean, it's an unselfish thought on her part. It's not about Satan. It's not, you're right. Satan's beyond help. The question is, why would God give this instruction to us? And it's for our good. Christ was trying to instruct us to pray for our enemies, primarily to help prevent us from becoming hostile, hard-hearted, bitter, and resentful. When we pray for our enemies, it moves us from being their enemy to being concerned for their welfare. 
And it opens our heart to the movement of the Holy Spirit to change us from bitter and resentful to loving and caring. Further, as the Holy Spirit works in our life in this process, we then become representatives of what love looks like in the face of offense. And that is a weapon God uses to win people's heart who haven't gone over the edge. Yes? Yes. But it is true there are some beings have gone so far that they can't be reached, not because God wouldn't reach them, but they destroyed the very faculties that respond to truth. And so praying for our enemies heals us and allows us to be used by God with our loving lifestyle and attitude toward those who have done us wrong as witnesses to reach out and win those who still can be won. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have gone to such incredible lengths to bring us the truth. And this is a wicked warfare, Lord, as you've been lied about and misrepresented and, and, and so many things have been told about you, even from pulpits. But we thank you that Christ came and the church is built and founded on the truth that when we've seen Christ, we have seen you. He is an exact representation of you, Father. May our minds be permeated with this reality. May we get rid of the distortions that keep us in fear. May we experience your love, love for you, love for others, that we might live the life of victory. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.